Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 to 27 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 to 27. You have to forgive me as I cough my way through this sermon. All right. I have my water on the ready. Um, What is true freedom, and how do you get it? What is true freedom, and how do you get it? You'll probably recall, as you think about it, uh, over the years of watching news broadcasts, seeing recordings maybe even, like I have, of Walter Cronkite and, and newscasters of old. I know some of you are rolling your eyes at me. It's okay. Uh, newscasters of old talking about broadcasting the news and talking about all these people out there in the town squares around the United States and maybe around the world uh, picketing with their picket signs or rioting or doing all kinds of different demonstrations, uh, even up to our very own day with presidential elections and all kinds of things going on in our world where we see these images on our TV screens of people that are casting off the authority structures over them. Think of everything back from the women's liberation movement to the wars that were happening in the 60s and 70s and all the way up into our very day with elections and whatnot. People casting off these authority structures that are on top of them. You cannot tell me what to do. I will claim ultimate freedom for myself. See, the world has made it clear. The way you get ultimate freedom. Freedom is demonstrated by power. If you want freedom then you must exercise power. You cannot show weakness. If you have an opponent, you must shout him down. You must win the debate. You must get control of the situation. Because if you want true freedom, then you must exercise power. In our text this morning, we're going to see that following Jesus... And the kingdom that he brings certainly has power that comes with it. But the freedom that it gives looks quite a bit different than what the world proclaims. Look with me at our text, Matthew 17, 24 to 27. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook And take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help. I need your help to preach. 
speak in place of me, preach a far better sermon than I ever could imagine. For us, as we listen, as we hear, we need your help. Hold our attention. Increase our appetites for your word. Give us understanding as we interpret this text and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. There are uh, two foundational pieces, I think, that are required, or very important at least, for understanding the text that we have just read and the text that we're going to spend some time studying this morning. The first is that by virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, we who are followers of Christ have been transferred from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of Jesus. Now, what that means is that our citizenship is not primarily American or Chinese or French or German or whatever nationality. Our citizenship is not primarily from those countries. If there is one message that I have preached time and again since I've been here as pastor of Emmanuel, it's that our citizenship is heavenly. The first sermon series I preached when I came here was through the book of Colossians, and that series was titled Heavenly Minded, because I think that is the greatest concern of the book of Colossians, is that our minds as Christians is bent on understanding that our citizenship is not primarily here. Our citizenship is in heaven already, right now, at this very moment, by virtue of what Christ has done for us. Now, this way of understanding our status, that it's currently a heavenly citizenship and not primarily part of the temporary kingdoms of this earth, has a lot of implications. For instance, if you're currently a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, then which law takes precedence for you? The law of the kingdom of heaven or the law of the United States of America? Well, it's the law of the kingdom of heaven, of course. So as an example, if the government were to ever come to me and probably will one day come to me and say, Pastor, you must perform a wedding ceremony for every legally recognized marriage in this country. What do I say? I say no. Why? Because my authority uh, has already been determined by my citizenship. My citizenship is in heaven. I have already bowed my knee to Christ. That is the highest authority that I can submit to. It's higher than the authority of the United States of America. So regardless of what they want to call marriage or uh, recognize legally, that has no bearing on me and what weddings I will perform here. Now, if you stop and think about this idea of our citizenship being first and foremost in the kingdom of heaven, it shifts your perspective on a lot of different things. Not just that, and not just for me, but for everyone in this church. It shifts our perspective on a lot of things. For instance, it changes how we live together and how we see one another. We see one another as brothers and sisters, as family members, which we wouldn't if not for our citizenship being mutually held in the kingdom of heaven. It changes our 
role in these lesser kingdoms, as I spend time in America and as the things that I do here and abroad, it it changes the way I see these lesser kingdoms, even to the point of the way I vote in elections and things like that. Now, we're going to have to deal with all of those things at a later time, but the point is there's lots of implications that this has for us as citizens. The second foundational piece is that it's important to remember where we left off last week. Remember the passage that came just before this. Last week we looked at two verses, verses 22 and 23. And and in those verses, Jesus gives a prediction for what he's about to do. He's about to go to death, and on the third day, he's going to be raised. And you remember that that I discussed with you what the hope that this gives to those that are following after Christ. Those that would call themselves disciples of Jesus, this gives them a lot of hope because the resurrection means I can't lose my life. That's what that means. By virtue of the fact that Jesus rose again on the third day, it means that I too, my body, is going to be resurrected from the grave. You can kill me and my soul is going to go be with the Lord and that is far better. And then one day... Christ is going to come back and raise the dead bodies and transform them. And we're going to dwell for all eternity on a new earth with Jesus as king. So then in death, what have I really lost? Nothing. I've only gained. Now, when you consider all of that, citizenship, resurrection of the dead, and the confidence that that gives us, When you consider all of that, you might think to yourself, I have a lot of freedom. I have a lot of freedom. The rebellion has begun. Jesus has led this rebellion. It has begun. And so I can thumb my nose at any authority that would ever be over me. Because what's the worst that they can do to me? (coughs) They can kill me but that will only improve my state. Why don't we say to the government then, I'm not paying those taxes. You can put me in jail if you want. You can kill me if you want, but it doesn't matter. You're only temporary. You don't have any authority over me. Who cares? Or maybe if the president walks in, you might say to him, I don't have to pay allegiance to you. I don't have to call you Mr. President or Sir. You're just a man. You don't have any authority over me. Well, that sounds like freedom. And freedom of a people who are not afraid of death. But in the passage that I want us to see this morning, there's one main observation of how Jesus and his disciples avail themselves of their freedom. And it's this. Citizenship in the kingdom of heaven provides you with freedom from all in order to submit to all. Citizenship in the kingdom of heaven provides you with freedom from all in order to submit to all. So the first thing that happens in this passage is that Jesus and his disciples, they come to Capernaum. 
which is their home base of operations. They're getting ready to leave to Jerusalem, but they gather together in Capernaum, and they're approached by a tax collector who's collecting a, what's said there is a two drachma tax. But this tax collector poses a question to Peter, probably outside the house, and asks, kind of corners Peter and asks him whether or not Jesus is going to pay the tax or, or not. And if Jesus doesn't pay the tax, then odds are his disciples also are not going to pay the tax. Now, there is a lot of historical uh, information that you need to get an appropriate understanding of this passage and to really appreciate what's happening here. First of all, the tax that's being taken up in this passage is not a Roman tax. This is a Jewish tax. And that's really important. It's not a Roman tax. It's a Jewish tax. So when you see verse 24, the collectors of the two drachma tax... These aren't the same people as the tax collectors that we've come to be familiar with in the Gospels. You know the tax collectors, the lowlifes and the reprobate people that are there with the sinners that Jesus goes and eats with, and everybody goes, why are you eating with sinners and tax collectors? This is not the same group of people. The, uh, the tax collectors that are the rejects in society, they are collecting taxes for the Roman Empire. That's part of the reason they are the rejects in society is because they have, they're seen as betraying their fellow brothers and sisters in, uh, in the Jewish faith. They're basically sided with the Roman Empire. These uh, tax collectors are collecting taxes for the temple. So they're coming in gathering taxes for the temple. The temple tax, on the other hand, is a yearly tax that was taken, obviously every year, of Jewish males from 20 years old and upwards. And all of this was based on Exodus 30, 11 to 16. In Exodus 30, 11 to 16, God permits Moses and the priesthood to gather the taxes from the Jewish people. And this would fuel the, uh, the, the life of the tabernacle, as it were, there in Exodus. And he gives them two reasons for taking this tax. The first is in verse 15 of Exodus chapter 30. It says to make atonement for their lives. And then as it says in verse 16 of Exodus 30, and it's also for the service of the tent of meeting. And so there were things that went on on the day of atonement that cost the temple money. Not only the time of the priest, but lots of other resources and things like that that were consumed there for the tabernacle. And the men that were counted in the census were responsible for basically bearing the cost that would be incurred upon the tabernacle or in Solomon's case and afterwards, the temple. Any cost that would be incurred was borne by the men of the country. As they were surveyed, they would give a half shekel to pay their temple tax. Now, another thing that complicates this part of the story is that the, there's several currencies that are being looked at here. First, there's a shekel, which is a Jewish currency. It's still the Jewish currency to this day. Then we see in this passage and in several other passages in the New Testament, the drachma, which is a Greek currency. And then you'll also see in various other passages, a denarii, which is a Roman currency. And all of these currencies are used within the land. So that further complicates everything. I'm sure you'll, you'll remember stories of 
especially the story of Jesus going into the temple and turning over the tables where the money changers are there in the temple. This is exactly what they're doing. When you come to pay your temple tax, you take your money from drachma or denarii and you change it over to shekel since that's the only currency permitted to be, to be used for a temple tax. And so they're converting the temple tax money from drachmas and denarii to shekels. Now, regardless of all that, the half shekel is about equivalent to two drachmas, which is two days' wages. So the temple tax is not a small fee. This isn't a a menial amount or small amount of money. For fishermen and for Jesus, who have nowhere to lay their head and are walking around the land ministering to people... Two days' wages is quite a bit. Plus, there's 13 of them. 26 days' wages between Jesus and his 12 disciples. That's not an insignificant amount of money. Now, the tax was collected by these local Jewish authorities at the synagogue, and it was collected just before Passover. So they're coming up to the Passover event and the local authority over the synagogue would meet each man in the census there in their town and would gather the, the temple tax from them. And then when they went down to the festival, they would present the, all the money there at the, at the temple and they would convert it and do all of those things. But they would pay it there all at once in one big lump sum. Now, not everyone paid the temple tax. For instance, there were priests that were obviously uh, ruled out. You don't have to pay the temple tax. Anyone that made their money off of donations, so people that were, I guess, head of 501c3 do- organizations and things like that, uh, wouldn't have to pay the temple tax at all. And then there were also people that were conscientious objectors to the tax. So the Sadducees hated the tax and didn't pay it. Most of them didn't pay it. And then there was a group called the Essenes. Many think John the Baptist was part of the Essenes. They were holy men that thought the temple was impure, that the people who were leading the temple were wrong. And so they would pay a temple tax once in a lifetime, not any after that. So when they turned 20, they would give one year's temple tax, and that would be all for their lifetime. So there were conscientious objectors. Not everyone paid the tax. So the point is that it's not entirely uncommon that someone might reject paying this tax. And so the question comes to Peter, does Jesus intend on paying this temple tax or not? And Peter says, yes, meaning he does. Why wouldn't he? He's a good Jew. He's the best Jew. He's the Messiah after all. Why wouldn't he submit to the regulations of the temple? But when Peter comes into the house, Jesus is going to correct his theology. Now, you have to feel a little bad for poor old Peter. In the last few chapters, he's had a rough go of it, to say the least. Starting all the way back to when Jesus called him Satan. It just has not been a good run of chapters for Peter. Now, he just told this tax collector that Jesus is going to pay the temple tax, but then he comes in and it seems as though he has misunderstood Jesus yet again. At least some very important parts of the Messiah's ministry to the Jews. And so in Peter's defense, it's entirely possible that Jesus has paid this temple tax before. This is not the first year that Peter 
is with Jesus. In fact, many people think that this is the fourth temple tax that has come around in Jesus' ministry. And so, it's entirely possible that Jesus has paid this uh, every year. And so Peter commits him to it without hesitation. He's done it the last few years. It's also possible that Peter has some second thoughts about Jesus actually paying this because it says when he came in, Matthew tells us that Jesus spoke to him first. And perhaps the meaning of Jesus speaking to him first is that he was coming to Jesus for clarification, but Jesus spoke to him first to correct the error that he has made. Point is, he's going to give Peter a little bit fuller understanding. So he poses to Peter a question, and it's posed in the, in the form of like a parable kind of. And he says, from whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? The question is simple enough to understand, but the meaning is a little bit deeper and a little bit more complex. When kings take taxes, does the king bother to collect taxes from his own children? The answer is, of course, no, he doesn't. Why would you collect money from your own children? It's like when your your children break something in your house and they tell you that they want to work or do chores for you to pay it off. You might as well just go buy the lamp yourself, right? Because you're just paying yourself back for the mistake that they made. They need to go make money from someone else and give that to me, right? <laughs> That's the reality. And so why would you, why would you uh, take taxes from your own children? Taxing your own children doesn't make sense. And so Peter answers correctly. He says, from others. And then Jesus responds, then the sons are free. Now, understand the meaning that Jesus is getting here because it, it has a couple of layers to it. First, the king, is, uh, the king that is collecting the temple tax is whom? God. God is the king of the temple. God is the one that is collecting the tax from the Jews by means of the temple. So then what is Jesus saying here? By virtue of the fact that he is the son of God, that makes him free from being taxed by his own father. Do you understand? Peter, think about it for just a second. The logic breaks down. You yourself confessed just a few chapters ago that I am the son of God. Why would my father take taxes from his own son? Who do you think I am? That logic doesn't even apply to the kings of the earth. But there's another layer here to his meaning of the sons are free. It's at least implicit in the text, if not explicit in the text. The ones falling into the category of sons of God is more than just Jesus. Because by virtue of being disciples and following Christ, the disciples are also considered sons of God. John tells us in John 1.12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Romans 8.14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Galatians 3.26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And the point that Jesus is making is that the sons, both he and all that follow him, are free from the regulations of the temple. The Jews who are not currently submitting to following 
Christ as his disciple, where do they go for worship? They have only the temple to go to. They have, their access to God is only through the temple. And so that's the only place they have to go to worship. But what do the disciples have? They have God in the flesh standing in front of them. He is who they go to for worship. Therefore, they, the people that go to the temple for worship have to submit to the temple and to its regulations, but the ones who are made sons of God by virtue of their discipleship with Jesus are not required to submit to the temple regulations in any way. But then Jesus demonstrates his power. It's here that Jesus flexes his muscle, shows what kind of real power he has. Not in the miracle. We'll talk about that in a second. But in what he says next in verse 27, however, not to give offense to them. He pays the temple tax so as not to give an offense. He's the son of God. He is exempt from all regulation. It's basically God taxing himself. He's exempt from it. All the righteousness of God is packed into a flesh and bone frame standing right in front of the disciples. Exempt from all regulation and yet. He's unwilling to offend the tax collectors. You see a similar picture in Matthew chapter 3 when Jesus goes to be baptized. He gets into the river and John goes, wait a minute, why are you coming to me to be baptized? I need to be baptized to you. Jesus has nothing to repent of and yet he is still getting into the water, submitting to God in all things because these are the things that God requires of his people. And so Jesus is going to submit himself to it. Because the one who is the most powerful is also the one who is the most free. Can do whatever he wants. But as it turns out, in the kingdom of heaven, submission is the truest exercise of power and freedom. In the kingdom of heaven, submission is the truest exercise of power and freedom. This is completely backwards from the way the world works. The world would scoff at what I just said. That sounds like lunacy. Submission is not freedom. Submission is a curse word in our culture. That's not freedom. That's not power. That's weakness. It's completely upside down from what conventional wisdom would tell you. This is backwards from what we see every day on our TV sets. No, the world would say. The strongest, the mightiest, the richest, the loudest, the smartest, the one with the sharpest tongue and the cruelest intentions, that one is the most free. Because he has the most power. No one can touch him. 
The one that can stand on the tallest platform, have the most people serve him, command the most attention. This is the one that has true freedom. This is the one that has true power. The one that doesn't have to submit to anyone. This is the one that has freedom. This is the one that has power. He never has to submit. Can you imagine never having to submit? Doesn't that make you free? Doesn't that mean you have power? I want to illustrate the way the world thinks of freedom and power versus what Jesus and his disciples are doing here, if possible. I want you to imagine two scenes. The first scene is taking place in Washington, D.C. Right there on the steps of the Capitol building there at the National Mall. And inside the building, some new law is being debated on the floor of the Senate. Republicans and Democrats are battling back and forth, arguing and filibustering and doing all of those kinds of things. And outside the Capitol building are hundreds of protesters, both Republican and Democrat. Both have signs that say the exact opposite things. T-shirts, blue and red, saying whether they're for or against the law that's being debated. Both have their megaphones, and they're doing their best to out-yell the other one with their chants and their rhymes and their limericks and all those kinds of things. All they want to do is shout the other one down. The bystander that's watching all of this takes place, take place can't really make heads or tails of what's being said because the voices are all coming together in just one jumbled mess. You can't separate them out. Which one has power? Which one has freedom? Which one has control? Which one has freedom from worry? Freedom from angst? Freedom from strife and hostility? Which one has real freedom from even competition? Which one has absolute freedom here? Whoever shouts the loudest, that's who. Whoever can wear his opponent out first by outlasting him. Whoever gets his side of the bill approved. Whoever has the most numbers on the Senate floor in his Direction. Whoever's politicians are the best debaters. Now, I want you to go to the second scene, to the suburbs of DC, out in the middle of Virginia. There's a house in a quiet neighborhood with a young family. They have a driveway, and at the end of the driveway is a basketball goal. And in the driveway, there's a father and his seven-year-old son who are playing basketball with one another. The rim is lowered so low that the dad has to kind of duck as he walks under it or he'll hit his head on the rim. The little boy has the ball and he's standing behind a crack in the driveway, which is a makeshift three-point line. And the little boy does a juke move around his dad and takes off running, not dribbling the ball, of course. And the dad doesn't call him for traveling. 
The dad instead acts like his ankles are broken and falls down to the ground like he's been fooled. And the boy takes off running up to the goal. The dad gets up to chase his son down. His son's now standing under the goal, probably a little too close, trying to get a shot just right so that he makes it on the first try. And he's kind of looking over his shoulder at his dad, who's now up. And his dad knows that the boy needs a little bit more time. And so he fakes a hamstring injury to kind of pull up limp to slow him down. The kid shoots and scores. The dad tries really hard to act like he's upset that his son just skunked him 11 nothing. In this scene, which one has freedom? Which one has power? Which one has freedom from worry? Freedom from angst? Freedom from strife and hostility? Freedom from competition? Which one has absolute freedom? It's clearly the Father. The son might think it's him, but really the son is a bottle full of worry. That his dad is going to get there, that his dad's going to reach out his long arms, that his dad's going to catch up to him and block the shot and steal the ball. But the dad knows he can win the game. There's no question. The dad knows that he has absolute power and that any moment he chose, he could win this game. He possesses all the power in the game. And because he has all the power, he has nothing to prove. Because he has all the power, he has nothing to prove. See, the freedom of the disciple is in submitting to others because it shows that he relies on the power of Christ who is the one to have sure victory. Who is the one that has all the power. The disciple can submit to others freely because he's relying on Christ's power. See, the world says, don't let them win because freedom comes from power. The only way we can be free is if we have the power. And the disciple says, you can have this because I know who has the power. In the immediate context, Matthew is telling us and his audience in this story that the disciple is free from any obligation to the temple. It's just rules, it's regulation, it's law. It doesn't actually bring you closer to God. You're free. The sons are free. And probably Matthew is writing to an audience who who is still could, could go to Jerusalem and still worship at the temple if they so chose. However, he's also telling them that in their freedom, they can use it to submit, to avoid offense. They can submit to avoid offense. And we actually see some of the apostles avail themselves of exactly this kind of freedom. 
Paul expresses it in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 9, 19-23. He says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. (coughs) I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul submitted to Jewish regulations in Acts 18.18. He took a Jewish vow and shaved his head and ends up there at the temple when he gets arrested It's also reasonable to conclude that though he did not feel like any food was unclean for him, he didn't avail himself to bacon in front of a Jew. The disciples' freedom leaves him free to submit to others so as not to impede the work of the gospel of the kingdom. But it doesn't stop there. In fact, It might stop there if no other book of the Bible ever weighed in on this topic. But the biblical writers, especially the New Testament writers, take this same logic and they apply it to all forms of submission that a Christian would take. Every single form of submission has the same logic behind it. Wives submitting to husbands in Ephesians 5.22 and Colossians 3.18. It says this, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Children submitting to parents, Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Bondservants submitting to masters in Ephesians 6.5-8. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or free. Church members to leaders, Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Every human institution, 1 Peter 2, uh, 13 to 17, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you would put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as, free, as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Why is it, brothers and sisters, that the disciple is free? Why is it that the disciple can submit to all of these people that God has placed over our heads? Because we ultimately serve a king who has real, lasting, eternal 
the powers and authorities that God has placed over our heads are only temporary. And in submitting to them, we testify to His power, not our own. We're not warring with the people that God has placed over us. We're submitting to them and we're following them. Why? Because we're testifying to His power, not to our own. When we war, when we obstruct, when we obfuscate everything in the path, the reason that we do that is because we want control instead of submitting to God's power and authority over us. You don't have to fight over power. Jesus demonstrates as much right here. If there's anyone who has a right to claim power and authority in this situation, it is him, and yet he submits to it. But the freedom that you have in Christ is best demonstrated by your joyful submission to those in authority over you. So what do we do with that? It's simple. Peter told us we live like we're free because in Christ we do have all the power. We're going to be raised from the dead. How much more power is there than that? So we have the ability to live like we're free. Yet in so many cases, we exercise frustration over those who have been put over us in authority. Our bosses. You ever have a boss you really don't want to submit to? person who's frustrating. I'm not talking about causes you to have ethical compromises. Obviously, those are gospel situations. I'm talking about it's just a pain. Husbands that are not believers becomes very difficult to submit in those situations. Again, I'm not talking about abusive situations. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just simple, everyday, ordinary conflict inside a marriage with the exception that he is not a Christian. What about presidents that aren't of your opinion? It's amazing over the last few years in many of the circles that i run in and find myself in seems that the office of president hasn't been hard to pray for in the last few years. But the eight years prior, all I heard was how difficult it was to pray for that president. Not all policies are created equal. Not all presidents are created equal. There were so many things that I disagreed with under the Obama administration. Abortion is unconscionable. And many other things. Same, so-called same-sex marriage became legal under that administration. But why is it hard to pray for a president when we're commanded to do it? Because your prayer for that president isn't submitting to him. It's submitting to God. Because he's commanded it. Why is it more difficult But it is. We feel this challenge and we feel this frustration over submission. But church, live like you're free. They don't have anything over you. They can't do anything to you. That's not more than temporary. The same one that's saying this, Peter, is going to be crucified upside down by these leaders. He watched 
the person he followed be crucified unjustly. And he's still saying, live like you're free, honor them. But then also, know and trust and believe that God is going to supply all of your needs in your submission. It's too hard. I can't do it. I feel like I'm constrained now. I can't voice my opinion. I can't pound the keys on Facebook because I'm worried about praying and submitting to this person that's on top of me. God supplies the needs of his children. That's evident when Jesus tells Peter, go to the lake and throw in your hook. Because this tax collector collects taxes and he's going to hold me accountable to taxes and I'm going to submit to it. But you know who's submitting to me? All the fish of the sea. Now that's power. So the disciple can submit and can trust because God is the one that provides and supplies for all our needs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for the application of this text. That you allow it to sit on all of our hearts. Perhaps we leave thinking, I'm not sure I do that. I pray you would reveal to us all, myself included, the number of ways in which we refuse to submit. Convict us of sin, the sin of failing to bow our knee to you who is of ultimate authority and who has commanded us in your word to submit. Thank you for the demonstration of even Jesus who doesn't see himself as too great to submit. Indeed, he submitted himself to death. I pray that we would take a likewise attitude in all things that we do in our workplaces, in our homes, in our church, everywhere. Pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.